Welcome back to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia Lamanna, one of the co-founders of this campaign. If you're new here, I encourage you to listen to our previous three episodes. And if you like what you hear, please do rate, review, subscribe and share the episode on your social media. It really helps us get the fair fashion message out there. In this episode, we're diving into how garment workers organise and build power for better conditions and pay, and how they're helping to reimagine new solidarity economies in fashion. When we created the Remember Who Made Them campaign, we knew the COVID-19 crisis showed the world what we've known for a long time that fashion needs a new solidarity economy. We are here to expose an exploitative fashion industry and challenge its systemic failures. Connect artists, activists, allies, workers and brands with one another to join in dialogue and mutual understanding. Amplify the voices, ambitions and artistry of garment workers around the world. Strengthen collectives, unions, campaigns and the collective bargaining efforts that directly support garment workers. Demand government and business meet much higher standards so that all people may live with dignity and joy. Enable everyone to practice solidarity by sharing creative solutions, accessible information and shareable resources. Transform the future of fashion with a permanent shift towards a new solidarity economy. In this episode, we want to learn more about what it means to organise. In a time where movement language is often co-opted and countless people state that they are activists, what does organising really mean? We speak to Solidarity Centre and organisers from the Dabindu Collective in Sri Lanka and Asia Floorwage Alliance to get their insight on how garment workers in fashion are organising, what are the risks they take and what are the ways they are building their collective power. So we as consumers and those wanting to catalyse a new alternative to the current exploitative and extractive industry can learn how we can support them. As we stated in the last episode, the interviewing for this has not been straightforward. When we first started creating this campaign, we went back and forth on how we would collect these stories. On the one hand, we were committed to centering more understanding on the lived experiences of garment workers and felt the only way to do that was to speak to them directly. On the other hand, we did not want to add more burden to them by taking up their time. We are not journalists and we did not want to repeat any extractive practices of taking their stories for our own use. As best as we can, we've spent time explaining who we are, relying on our own networks and relationships to reach out to these groups so that they have a sense of trust and faith in us as well. Technology, translation and scheduling has still been a bit difficult, but in spite of all that, we are so grateful for the connections that were made. With all of that in mind, let's get started with this episode and it's my pleasure to hand over to Swati. Thanks so much, Venetia. Swati here. Really excited to share this interview with you all. On the topic of actions make movements and labour organising, we're really excited to speak to Monica Hartzell, who's the Programme Officer for Asia for Solidarity Centre, which is the largest US-based international worker rights organisation. Welcome, Monica. Hello, Swati. Good to be here. 
So Monica, we will start as we always do by asking you to describe what you're wearing. Um, this helps us honor the people that made your clothes and the work that we take from those workers. So please tell us what you're wearing today. So I am not too proud to admit that since the start of the pandemic and I've been working from home, I have been existing almost exclusively in athletic wear with stretchy waist pants. So I today am wearing a t-shirt and leggings from my favorite woman-owned running apparel brand called Lazelle. And these clothes were produced in the Philippines. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So Monica, please, can you tell us a bit about Solidarity Center, how it came together, what its aims are, and what your role in particular is? Sure. So as you mentioned, Solidarity Center is the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization, and we partner directly with workers and their unions in about 60 countries all around the world. And our focus is really on supporting workers to work collectively, to, uh, to work towards respect on the job, fair wages, better workplaces, and more broadly, a voice in the global economy. And we're also closely associated with the AFL-CIO and the American labor movement. So we really feel that extending labor solidarity to workers all around the world is important because we know that the more union members there are globally, the more working people that are fighting for their rights on the job, the stronger we all are. And um, I work specifically in our Asia department, and I support programs in Bangladesh and Cambodia. And of course, these are two countries where the garment industry is a major export sector and an employer of many, many workers in those countries. And um, I guess I'll say if you detect any nervousness in my speech, it's because I'm mainly behind the scenes. So my union brothers and sisters are the ones who are on the front lines of this struggle. And they're the ones who are really doing the hard work of organizing. And so my job is kind of to support and to champion and to follow their lead. Because um, you know we know that no one's really better positioned to advocate for garment workers than garment workers themselves. So basically, we're working to make sure that workers have access to legal support if they're facing anti-union discrimination and that they're connected with resources, training opportunities to improve their organizing and hopefully to um, create better outcomes for workers. We are such huge fans of your work and also just want to do a, a shout out to um, our amazing colleagues at the Global Fund for Women who put us in touch with you guys as well. So thank you to them. Um, Monica, one of the things that we've really been thinking about is, you know, that many of us are sort of used to the terminology around activism and organizing and collective action um, but a lot of these concepts are very new for many people and I think at the moment there's a lot of co-option of movement language in in mainstream discussion and so really just wanted to um, help our audience by understanding what is organizing. I like to think about organizing as being about building power and also about rebalancing power. 
So um, when I'm saying building power, that is the act of gathering workers together around common goals. A lot of times that's to improve wages, to improve working conditions, to have more dignity and respect on the job. And it's with the knowledge that workers are stronger when they're together. And so organizing to build power involves a lot of active listening. It involves one-on-one -on -one conversations. And of course, usually those are in person, but right now workers around the world are having to adapt to extremely different situations. So now uh, organizers are trying to use digital platforms, everything from you know Facebook Live to WhatsApp to the Line app to try to connect with one another digitally to unite and to push towards their common goals. And then this, the second part, the rebalancing power aspect, that is something that's really important in the garment supply chain because you have these power differentials that are so extreme between a garment worker in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or Cambodia, all the way up to very, very wealthy and powerful executives at multinational apparel brands. And so when workers are able to organize a union, that gives them bargaining power. And unions are protected by both national and international laws and standards. Now, those rights are not always respected, but it does give workers a legally viable mechanism, a platform uh, to negotiate with their employers. So they can sit down across from the boss and represent the interests of all the workers in their factory and kind of put them on a more level playing field with the employer that isn't possible when it's just individual workers trying to create change. Let me give you an example from Bangladesh um, where workers have organized really successfully around improving health and safety um, prevention or prevention and protection protocols in their factories and particularly fire and building safety. So I think many of your listeners may be familiar with the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory complex in 2013. This was one of the world's worst industrial disasters. It killed over 1,100 workers and, and many, many, many more were injured. And Workers in those factories did not have unions. Those organizing attempts had all been suppressed. So even though they saw cracks forming in the foundation of that building and told their employers about it, they were told that they had to continue working or they would risk being fired. So now, post Rana Plaza, we've seen this real boom in labor organizing workers are, are finally having some space to gather together and to fight for improvements in their safety at work. What is the importance of collective organizing and um, how should we be trying to understand how workers are building their power collectively so that we can be better allies for it? So we see again and again that in our capitalist system that wealthy factory owners, that brands are not always going to do the right thing unless they are pressed to do so, really. Um, and we know that there's not progress without struggle. 
So I think that collective action is really how workers can demonstrate their strength. And we see that kind of collective action uh, playing out in a couple of different ways. So it could be through direct action. So through demonstrations, um, strikes, sit-ins, um, and it can also happen through negotiations and dialogue between workers and management when they're coming together to call for a change. And so I guess um, a couple good examples from the current moment are, are during the COVID crisis, a lot of workers are uh, facing job loss and are not being paid their wages. And, um, you know, many of the global fashion brands have faced declining orders. And in turn, they've, they've canceled their orders from supplying countries like Bangladesh, like Cambodia, like Sri Lanka, leaving a lot of workers worried that they will not have a job, that they will not be able to put food on the table or, you know, take the safety precautions necessary to keep their own families safe from the, the virus. And so what we've seen through the collective actions of workers is that they have been able to use their relationships with management to negotiate for better outcomes for workers. So in one factory, for example, in Bangladesh, there were 280 workers who were suddenly terminated from their employment without notice, and they didn't get paid their severance. And the workers were able to, um, you know, they contacted the brand, they had the brand intervene. And through that, through that process, they were able to make sure that those workers got three months salary paid out in severance. And then in another case, they were actually able to prevent 450 workers from being fired. So those kinds of, um, those kind of collective actions are what's really, um, what's really building power for workers. So interesting. And I'm sure all of um, our listeners um, and us ourselves, we want to think about how we can be in better solidarity with workers as well. So I think knowing how they need to organize and to collectivize um, and the power that that brings also, I think, helps us to think about how we can be better allies. Um, Really curious also, uh, Monica, on um, the reference you made that actually we've heard quite a lot of times um, in the sort of, I guess, the representation of um, like, I guess, the gender split as well in terms of representation of women and men um, in the organizing space or in unions and just yeah, we're just really curious to find out a little bit more um, around, I guess, those, uh, the reality of the situation and, and why you think that might be and, and offer any solutions for how we could change the space as well to be more reflective. Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it's the case in, in many of the, the place, the supplier countries for garments is that the majority of the workers in those factories are women. Um, but even within the organizing space within unions, you will find that disproportionately the top union leadership positions are going to men. So, of course, um, women are facing gender-based discrimination in their jobs, in their unions, in their homes, in their communities. It's, it's everywhere. It's a, it's a holistic challenge that we need to work to address. Um, and when we have seen 
women leaders emerge, it's kind of amazing to see the results because they are, are addressing issues that impact the majority of the workers in the factory. So for, for example, um, there are some phenomenal leaders in a trade union federation called SGSF. And they recently negotiated a contract that covers over 5,000 workers at a factory. And because the people who were negotiating that contract were, were women who understood and had talked to other women in the factory to actually understand what they needed and what they wanted to improve their, their lives at work, um, it it was kind of amazing to see the results. So the contract that came out had all these provisions that specifically spoke to their situation. So it included things like mandatory, a certain number of mandatory promotion for women workers because they saw that their male coworkers were getting promoted to better positions within the factories, to being able to operate different kinds of machinery that could give them higher wages and better shifts and all of that. And they wanted to see that change, so they did it. They also knew that um, women and other uh, people with marginalized identities were experiencing a lot of gender-based violence and harassment on the job. So they ensured that that contract demanded the establishment of an anti-harassment committee that would give workers a voice in preventing and ending gender-based violence and harassment in the factory. So when we've seen those women emerge, the results are, are enormous. Um, how do we get there? That is, that's a challenge. One of the things that, um, that we had observed after talking to a lot of women who had been through union organizing and leadership programs with Solidarity Center is that one of the main obstacles was actually um, family members, maybe husbands, fathers, brothers, um, and then kind of all of the domestic duties that women were expected to perform. Those emerging leaders uh, were kind of dropping out of their leadership positions um, because they were either being prevented from taking on those roles in public life by a family member or, or someone else in their circle or they were just not able to keep up with all of the domestic responsibilities and on top of that, their work plus the, the responsibility of leading a trade union. And so we started doing some workshops that brought together not just women, but also men, men in the union, um, male family members, and tried to talk more holistically about how do we create the conditions? How do we look at what are the root causes of, of why women are struggling to participate in these leadership roles and how can men also change their behavior to ensure that there is space for women to take on leadership positions. So interesting. And I think lots of the things that you were talking about, I think are just resonant of so of, I guess, the need for intersectionality and an intersectional analysis to the problems that we have and, and navigating towards solutions. Because I think you know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, the the changes that, you know, the knock on changes that were achieved by women rising into the 
the union ranks as well and the kind of multiple changes that were achieved or pushed um, but also I think navigating the the patriarchal kind of structures um, that also prevent women from participating and entering into the space and and the need for an intersectional like holistic response as well so super interesting thank you so much for that Monica I also wanted to ask like you brought up some brilliant examples of worker organizing um as well and sort of I guess that story of like going from organizing to changes just wanted to also ask about the the kind of level of organizing that means changes and negotiation with brands themselves um and just what does that feel like what are the sort of uh, what are the components or some examples um, that are interesting that you would like to share? Sure. So I think that you can look at negotiation with brands on a, a micro and a macro level. So at the micro level, at the at the factory level, what I've seen is a lot of very savvy union leaders building relationships with brand representatives especially at the regional and the national level, not necessarily the, you know, the, the big wigs in, in Europe or the U.S., but those who are located close by, they'll build relationships with those representatives. And when workers are maybe organizing a new union or they're planning to negotiate a contract and they, and they have a sense that that employer may cause trouble for them, um, because, of course, there is significant repression of trade unions um, all across the world and especially in garment producing countries. So they'll kind of give that brand rep a heads up. Um, and sometimes even just knowing that the brand is informed is enough to deter bad behavior from the employer. Um, and in some cases, uh, the bad behavior may occur, but brands may be able to intervene uh, helpfully to say, look, freedom of association is, is important. Um, it's a legal right of workers to form a union. So if you would like to remain our supplier, you need to toe the line. So that's one way that it can it work. I also hear from my colleagues in, in Myanmar that during the pandemic, one of the ways that they've ad adapted this strategy is actually getting, uh, getting workers familiar with using digital platforms like Zoom. And so there have actually been some really successful negotiations between workers and their unions, employers and brands, all getting on the line together. Of course, everyone is remote. So it actually kind of creates this unique situation where that's possible. And the, you know, the pressure that the brand brings to bear on that relationship has often helped to ensure that workers aren't getting laid off during the pandemic or that they're getting paid um, and the brands are able to actually maybe put their money where their mouth is and uh, see what they can do to support workers in this time. Because, of course, the pandemic has hit everyone really hard. You know, it has hit brands, it has hit factory owners, but workers, it's hitting the hardest because they have, you know, they've been working for abysmally low wages for a long, long time. And that has prevented them from having any kind of cushion to safeguard them against this shock. So that negotiation has been very helpful in, in making sure that workers can survive in this moment. Another really interesting one that is, is pretty new still 
is in uh, Lesotho, and and this is a program that Solidarity Center and other worker rights organizations have been supporting. It is uh, a series of legally binding agreements to eliminate gender-based violence and harassment at five garment factories in Lesotho. And that agreement was negotiated between unions, um, women's rights organizations, and a, um, a, manu a single manufacturer that owns several factories and um, is the main supplier to three major brands, um, mostly producing denim, um, jeans, that kind of thing for the global market. And that agreement is, is kind of a great example of how a negotiation between brands and workers can work. Can work. Um, because the workers were full and equal participants in that design, and they'll also be the ones who are fully involved in making sure that it is implemented and enforced. So those are uh, those are just a couple examples of what uh, you know what worker and brand engagement can look like. Thank you so much for your insights, Monica, um, and to your experience and the experience of Solidarity Centre in working on worker rights uh, around the world and within the garment sector in particular, and just really grateful for your wisdom, expertise, and your time. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Hey, everyone. It's Davy. As I was listening to Swati and Monica's conversation, it made me think of different workers, union leaders, and labor organizers that I've actually had the privilege of knowing in my life. And one of those people is Shamila Tushari. She's the leader of Dabandu Collective in Sri Lanka, where Jiva from our last episode from Feminist and Fashion, Emancipation and Exploitation, Jiva is actually a member of Dabandu. And Dabandu means drops of sweat, which says a lot. <laughs> I asked Shamarla if she'd be willing to share her story with us of how she got involved in organizing and what it means to her and to the women and workers of Sri Lanka so we can better understand what it's like to do organizing work and what it's like to stand up for yourself against the fashion factories and against fashion brands. We're really grateful to Sankuntala Mapa for helping us speak Shamila's story in English so we can all listen. This is Shamila's story interviewed by Devi. My mother and father both were leaders in a trade union. Growing up, they used to hold meetings at my house and there were always workers around. My parents would always offer food and a safe place for those who needed it. Sometimes my brothers and sisters and I would support my parents and their friends by making posters or placards for different strikes and sometimes take part in them. When I was 19, sitting my advanced level exams, my family and I were forced into hiding. There are six of us, four children and two parents, and we were all separated from each other for six months as we hid for our lives. This was because earlier that day, two people had been murdered for their support of workers' rights. One was a worker who helped create a newsletter for the Darbindu Collective. The other was a legal advisor who supported cases for the trade union my father was a part of. Both of these people were killed for exposing a situation that was happening at the Floral Greens factory. This factory produced plastic flowers, and the way the flowers were produced, many workers were starting to get their fingers cut, losing nails and regularly getting wounded from the production process. 
So this worker wrote an article about this in the Dabindu collective paper. He was promptly fired. My mother and father connected him to the legal advisor to defend his case of unfair dismissal. The legal advisor and the worker went to the factory to negotiate his case. Representing the factory was a lawyer who would later become a minister in the government. During this meeting, it was agreed that this worker would get back his job. They had won his case. They took a push cycle to get home, but they never got home. Ten kilometers from the factory, police gunned them down. Many of us know the factory had sent the police after them. When I came home that day from sitting my exams, my parents were gone, taken in by police for questioning. When they were released, we decided to go into hiding for our safety. I was 19 when I decided I would dedicate my life for workers' organizing. Currently, 95% of the workers in Sri Lanka are not unionized. So for worker organizations like Dabindu Collective, there has been a lot of instances where there are external pressures to hinder them from trying to organize. When workers organize, we know there's a threat of violence at the hands of police who are protecting factories. I have taken part in strikes and protests where shots have been fired. I've defended cases of sexual harassment and faced my own harassment because of it. We are constantly pressured to give up what we are doing. Pressure comes from the government, from the Board of Investment, from factory owners, from managers to tell us to stop doing what we are doing. There have been many years where we have been followed by the CID. Often, if the police comes to our house, you fear for your life. We rely on relationships with international organizations to appeal for our safety. If we go to jail, we need outsiders to put pressure on the government. It has been 42 years since the EPZ started. The most important thing that would grant a sense of freedom for workers would be the right to unionize. To be clear, you'll find unions in some of the factory zones. However, they are highly patriarchal. Their leaders are men, but remember that 80% of garment workers are women. There's little representation of women and their perspectives are often not included. The number of union members is actually decreasing. Sri Lanka has signed eight different conventions that are supposed to protect workers. But there are so many incidents still of exploitation. So many workers are single mothers. So many are young. So many are malnourished. The impact of this are for life. Without unions, they have no bargaining power. During the COVID-19, union busting was actually increased because they do not want workers to demand for their rights. Freedom for a worker is to be able to unionize. We can fight for our own rights, fight for safe working conditions, fight for a healthier life. Something that makes me happy is that we continue to fight, that we get involved to fight for the rights of women workers. We are gaining recognition. We are part of Clean Clothes Campaign and Asia Flow Wages, where we are stronger together against brands. We have been asked to become a union ourselves, and this makes me so happy. I'm so grateful for Sharmila for sharing her story. And I actually want to take us up another level. You know, listening to Sharmila, we're able to sort of understand more of how individuals make up collective organizing and how important it is to them. And I want to take it up to 
that organizing that happens on the regional to the global level. A look at how all of our actions make up this movement. I was honored to speak with Ananya Bhattacharji, a labor organizer and trade unionist in India. She is the founder and president of the Garment and Allied Workers in North India, and she is currently the international coordinator of the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, which is the Asian labor-led alliance across garment-producing countries, such as India, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, and Bangladesh. And it's also allied with consumer regions, the USA and Western Europe. They are an alliance that addresses poverty level wages, gender discrimination, and freedom of association, that is the freedom to organize in global garment production networks. So make sure you follow Asia Floor Wage Alliance on Instagram and Twitter. And here is Ananya. We always like to start our interviews by asking people, what are they wearing today? Does it mean anything special to them? Can we hear what you're wearing today? Yes, uh, sure. I'm wearing uh, one of the traditional dresses in India, which is a salwar kameez. And it is made out of local cloth and stitched by a local tailor. And that's how it works. It's dark gray and it's got some... um, golden thread embroidery um, and some and a pair of red uh, pants which is the salvas thank you for sharing let's hear a little bit more about how you got into this work Uh, we know you're the president of the allied workers union in north india and you're also leading in asia floor wage alliance can you say how did you get involved in this work And yeah, a little bit about your life. So the name of the union is Garment and Allied Workers Union. And I'm the president of that, as you noted, in North India. So I, well, I grew up in a lower middle class family in India, which is not at all politically active and has no history of activism. But I was exposed to, you know, violence against women and also the problems of poverty and inequality at a pretty early age in life that at least conditioned me for understanding injustice and probably a a need for justice, which must have developed unconsciously. Uh, When I went to college, that's when I really uh, was exposed to what would be called activism. When I became an activist, I didn't really call myself that, but when I became involved in social change work, then I realized uh, how important uh, it was for me. It was almost like a fish uh, which was trying to swim on land, suddenly finding the ocean. It was very natural to me and uh, even though I was preparing for a sort of a career with an income that would be stable like any any you know person coming from a lower middle class family wanting steady income that is how i had gone to college but then when i got out of it i pretty much left what i had professionally studied which was computer science and i went into full time activism And I began actually in the women's movement because violence against women was a very important part 
of my experience and wanting to see justice in that. I also worked on migrant rights because I have always been moving around. And so my migrants was a very, I understood that experience instinctively. So this is how I entered activism at the community level. And then I, the more I did, I, I realized how important economic justice and fairness is because independence and freedom is not completely realizable till we have control over uh, the, the income we earn and have some kind of fairness in our life around economic justice. So that's how I got into the world of labor, labor rights. And uh, I have organized among domestic workers, garment workers. I've also organized other informal sector workers. Uh, the, the garment uh, industry is a very important one uh, for a developing country because the garment industry is often the first sort of industry that workers go into when uh, uh, when they want to enter the industrial workforce and a country that is trying to do mass industrialization for such a country garment industry is a very important one so in asia the garment industry is extremely important and that is how i got into uh, organizing workers there um, and then as we were doing our work, we realized that really the garment industry is a global industry. It is what is called the global supply chain. It, that's the structure of the industry. And that uh, really <clears throat> the, the bosses of the garment industry are not just the local factories producing the products, but the fashion brands in the United States and Europe that are buying those products they determine the working conditions because <clears throat> it, it's their purchasing practices uh, that determine how much a worker has to produce, how fast and at, at what cost. So given this, we all realized that organizing and demanding only at the country level was not enough because the brands were sourcing across Asia and they were pitting one country against another saying, well, Bangladesh is cheaper than India and Vietnam is cheaper than Cambodia and we will relocate if you raise your wages and so on and so forth. So we decided that we had to build regional unity as Asian labor in order to bargain with global brands. And that's how Asia Floor Wage Alliance was formed. So many questions in what you just shared. I want to, I really appreciate what you said about fish finding the ocean to describe activism. That was beautiful. What do you say to a woman who is in the garment industry or any industry? Like, how do you explain or uh, invite her into also the collective organizing that you found and why it's important? Because I also understand it, it, it's, um, it can be also quite challenging or a bit intimidating. Can you share a bit more about how, how you bring women workers together? It's not really difficult to argue the case for organizing with workers because workers are the best people to know what the realities of the working conditions are. 
And then when they try to do something about it, an individual worker usually finds that she or he in an industry like garment, which is exploitative, finds that uh, retaliation is very swift. That worker is usually terminated, you know, or beaten up or shouted at for raising a grievance. And ultimately that grievance is not addressed. Workers quickly realize that at an individual level, they are quite powerless. However, what happens is that because the situation of garment workers is so, what should I say, uh, coercive and exhausting uh, because these are workers who are often working seven days a week, overtime every day, poverty level wages. So they are barely managing to survive uh, between home and work. Um, and they barely have any time to, you know, sit down to talk to other workers, to think about collectivization. But they usually know that acting individually is not helpful. So to convince workers to collectivize is not a difficult argument. However, what happens is in an industry like garment is um, where fashion brands are demanding very high production targets at a cheap labor cost um, and with a quick turnaround time given the fast fashion seasons, um, they create, brands create a coercive atmosphere for workers and therefore the just the physical conditions and the environment the worker works in makes organizing extremely difficult and also there is swift retaliation even after unionization so union members can be discriminated can be threatened that you lose your job if you if you join a union uh, and, and these coercive tactics are usually practiced because it is a low-wage industry that wants to ensure that workers are not empowered enough to raise grievances because the grievances are many. So, so again, so, you know, just to summarize, it's not difficult to argue about collectivization. Workers realize the importance of it. It's more about really having the opportunity, the time to do it and to sustain it. From what I've seen in Cambodia, I often say that labor organizing is such a dangerous job because of the retaliation I've seen and the threat to life. And I I'm still wonder, and through this whole journey of this podcast, actually, I would love to know what you think from people outside of that community, or even as you were saying with the supply chain, if we think about the consumer or we think about me, or we think about our audience who are mostly listeners in the US or the UK, how, how can we show up and be in transnational solidarity with worker organizing? Uh, the power of the consumer is huge. The, the brands really fear reputational risk. So they uh, do not like it when it becomes public that their purchasing practices are causing so much exploitation and misery. And when it is well documented, especially when there are examples to show which of which there are many stories. So brands tend to uh, 
really uh, get very affected by consumer activism in the home countries because their market value depends on keeping consumers satisfied. And if we take consumer satisfaction as not just discount prices and low prices, but also a belief that the products they consume are based under fair, are, are produced under fair conditions. If that is one of the parameters of consumer satisfaction, then brands get really affected um, and uh, fearful of losing the trust of the consumers. I have always said that the consumer in the Europe and the United States are extremely important. Even if it is one person, five people, 10 people, it doesn't have to be a large number. I have seen that uh, the consumer communication to brands and then the supplier factory also finding out that the brand is agitated by the consumers. You know, the supply chain is such that if the consumer agitates, it vibrates throughout the chain and can really bring a lot of pressure onto whatever case we are working on, whatever situation we are trying to correct. So it's, it's a very important voice. And to be in solidarity is extremely important because time and again, we have seen that uh, keeping a fight very local, at, I mean, for simple things, we can get some things done. But for any of the real illegal viol uh, violations that happen, which happen routinely, uh, the, the consumer pressure and the brand reaction is very important. As people maybe are starting to learn how to be in more solidarity, is there something you would also really lift up and how we could connect more or any actions that you would specifically list right now? Yeah, I would like to uh, kind of list sort of a short term, medium term and a longer term uh, approach to this. The short term immediate uh, situation is that workers are in severe humanitarian crisis. Um, and why are they in a humanitarian crisis? It's because uh, there was a lockdown between March and you can say July. Um, and uh, factories were either suspending uh, operations or, or closing due to the lockdown. And workers who are paid poverty level wages cannot sustain themselves even for like two weeks without an income. So what we saw is a desperate, uh, you know, plunge into uh, starvation, homelessness, and uh, all of us, the trade unions, have actually been doing relief work, trying to get food to workers and so on. So, so our immediate demand of brands, because we believe that brands who have made enormous, extremely high profits for decades from, their, uh, from this industry uh, need to contribute to, uh, to contribute to the workers' wages so that the wage loss is compensated and for that we have asked for a very simple dem uh, concrete demand which is that for each brand we we are asking the brand to pay 
2% over the last year's sourcing amount that they gave to the supplier. So if a brand gave $100, 2% is $2. So it will be you give $2 for every $100 uh, to the supplier. And that would be enough to uh, pay for the wage loss faced by the workers in the supplier factories of each particular brand. So we call this the Supply Chain Relief Contribution, SRC, and this is our immediate demand to meet the humanitarian crisis. Um, we believe that the brands are responsible for this. Uh, a more medium-term approach is that, and we have been saying this uh, since the beginning of Asia Flowage Alliance, uh, we, Asia Flowage Alliance has developed the first ever cross-border living wage formulation for garment workers in Asia. In other words, we have formulated a common living wage for garment workers in Asia. And what we find is that this living wage that we have formulated by doing grassroots surveys with workers, we find that it is roughly three times the local minimum wage. So a garment worker who is getting paid usually the minimum wage really needs to get paid the living wage and the gap is three times. What we want brands to pay is the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage. The supplier factories are already paying the minimum wage, but the brands pay such a low price for the products to the supplier factories that that price does not accommodate living wage. They, the brands pay only for minimum wage and we believe that is not acceptable given that this is such a high revenue industry and the brands make a lot of profit. So we want brands to give a living wage contribution, uh, which is uh, the gap between the minimum wage and living wage so that workers can start getting paid the living wage, which is a very basic need of a human being. So that's sort of a more medium term demand that we have. And the longer term is really, it's not just a labor demand, it's really for the planet. And we, we are in solidarity with the climate justice movement. We, the garment industry is uh, very wasteful and is really destroying the planet. And uh, fast fashion relies on overproduction and overconsumption. This model of operation is destroying our planet. Uh, so to save uh, in the planet, to save the environment, as well as to have decent life for workers, we believe that the fashion industry needs to be transformed so that it is a much more sustainable industry, that it's not on this uh, fast fashion mode. When I say fast fashion, I am not only talking about those brands who are uh, truly changing their seasons every uh, few weeks. There, uh, there are brands who do not change their season that often, but their production practices are no different from the fast fashion brands. So fast fashion brands have actually created a model of production which all the brands follow. So this model of production needs to change, which is uh, relies on um, wasteful pr 
production, overproduction, wasteful overconsumption, and which has a high cost for our planet. I have one last question. What are the hopes that you have for the future of the fashion industry? And you know, what would what would it look like if you could get everything that you wanted? <laughs> now under COVID-19, I do see people rethinking their values. They're rethinking whether fast fashion is indeed the way to go, uh, whether one should in fact care more about health, more about the environment, more about sustainability, less about discount. Uh, there is definitely a mood against the discount culture. However, I do not see that as having become mainstream yet, uh, but I do see it significantly important. I have seen it even in the industry journals. So I think that this is a moment, any kind of crisis is gives us opportunity for change. And if we do not grab this opportunity and make these values mainstream and very important and popular and public, there is a chance of just going back to business as usual. So I hope that uh, movements can be built to uh, take this opportunity to establish a new set of values. I believe that the world is ready for it and I believe that people genuinely want it. However, the corporate advertising machine is extremely strong and builds aspirations for the public that are not sustainable. So we do need to uh, find lots of ways to uh, bolster public opinion for these broader set of values, which I do believe most people want to live by. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you very much and all the best for your work. Thank you, Davy. From the interviews with Monica, Shamila and Ananya and the many conversations we've had with workers around the world, we know that actions make movements. We are particularly taken with Ananya's three-stage plan. The short-term humanitarian relief needed for workers hit most acutely by the crisis. The medium term to demand that the brands who have heavily profited for decades pay living wages to all workers. And finally, the long-term transformation needed for an industry that is for people and planet. We know from these conversations that the most direct way to show solidarity for garment workers right now is to donate to strengthen their collective fight for change. But there are lots of other ways to practice solidarity too. And they look like this. Demand more from the brands you follow so we can start to change our broken system. Contact them on social media, write to them directly to ask and demand they provide relief and pay living wages. Demand more change from your government. Use your voice on social media to lift up the stories, ambitions and collective demands of garment workers and raise awareness with your family and friends. Educate yourself on how workers are building power and you can also choose to buy better or buy less, upcycle or wear a triple OTD, which is an old outfit of the day, with pride. By doing one or all of these things, you will become part of a new kind of economy that proves there's a better way to care for the clothes that we buy, the people who make them, and the planet we all live on. 
In the next episode, we're going to be exploring more stories on worker organizing. Ruby will be speaking to groups in Mexico and will be learning more about how dangerous this work can be, as the fashion industry has much to lose when workers organize and when we stop being silent. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Patreon at Remember Who Made Them. Over there, we share loads of useful resources, links, and a bonus podcast series, which I think you might enjoy. All money we receive on Patreon goes direct to supporting garment workers and their unions, so we hope to see you over there. We all love clothes. Let's remember who made them. Ooh.